0: Good morning and welcome to Faith on Hill's online Sunday morning service. Faith on Hill is a church here in North Clackamas County uh, and we meet Every Sunday morning in person and online at 10:30 a.m. Video versions of this service are available on our Facebook page and on our website faithonhill.com. Audio only podcasts of this message are available on Apple Podcasts and Spotify. All you have to do is search faith on hill. Additionally, Uh, We have our Zoom group every Wednesday night at 7 p.m., and you can email smallgroups at faithonhill.com for the link. We have other small groups uh, that meet in person, but our Zoom group is the easiest to access. We pray together. We check in on one another. I really just look forward uh, to that time that we spend together encouraging each other, going deeper into God's Word. We uh, go through a set of questions that are based off of this Sunday morning Bible study, and uh, it's one of the best things we do all week. Also, we are back with new episodes of the 20-Minute Bible Study. The video version is available on our Facebook page and audio version also available on our podcast stream through Apple Music and Spotify. We're studying the Book of Exodus on our 20-Minute Bible Study, and it's a great way. You know, as you're driving around, you got some errands to run, 20 minutes, you turn it on, you're, you're in, you're out, and you've got a Bible study. So uh, excited to have that as a, as a thing for you as well. Also, our Conference of Churches uh, is hosting a four-week theology and community session, and we're basically trying to find ways to discuss uh, issues regarding faith and church life together as a group of churches. And it's every other week for four weeks, so this week is the second session. It's not too late to join. You can check our Facebook page for the link. and uh, I'm one of the guys facilitating it, and uh, this go-around, we're having a conversation about the role of women in church leadership, and specifically pastoral leadership, uh, but you don't have to be a pastor to be part of it. We have a Tuesday night session and a, Wednesday, a Thursday morning session, but it's the same conversation, just at two different uh, jumping-on points. Um, I, I'm so thankful for the, the women who help lead our church, and, uh, and it's a great time to have conversation about um, how we can empower women to serve Jesus as he has called them to serve him. Uh, if you have a Bible, we are going to get into the book of Daniel in just a minute. And then at the end of our service this morning, we have our new um, non-musical worship time. We found that uh, musical expressions of worship are wonderful when we're together, but they're not particularly engaging online. Um, And we've found that through, quite honestly, just the analytics that that we get shown from these videos. uh, We can log in and we can see the, the announcements people watched, the Bible study people watched, the song at the end, people logged off. And so we understand that's not particularly engaging. So we're starting new non-musical ways for people to engage in the worship of Jesus Christ. And love for you to stick around at the end for that. Let's open our Bibles to the book of Daniel, chapter 11. We're going to start This week, where we ended last week. Daniel chapter 10, verse 20. This is the angel speaking. He said, Do you know why I have come to you? Soon I will return to fight against the prince of Persia, and when I go, the prince of Greece will come. But I will first tell you what is written in the book of truth. No one supports me except Michael, your prince. And in the first year of Darius the Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him. Now, I tell you the truth. And then he goes on to give instruction in the vision here. But before we go farther, I wanted to start with this understanding of awareness. The big idea this morning is that exiles see beyond. And what I mean by that is this, imagine that you lived, you were born and raised inside a walled city. And I don't know if somebody says walled city, what you think of, um, maybe you think of sort of a boxy square fortress type establishment, uh, something you see in castles in Spain and in North Africa. Um, maybe you think of, you know, something like from Lord of the Rings, maybe you think of, um, you know, something real simple, just like an old, an old Western fort that had just basic wood, uh, beam walls. I'm not sure what you think of, but for me, it's a a stone walled city, kind of circular in shape. Uh, for six months of my life, I lived in the city of York, England, and York is a walled city and you, um you could go and walk around the wall and it was uh, it was actually a kind of a fun jog uh, there was a point there was it was in fact living in York I remember it was the only point in my life where I jogged uh, I've never been a jogger and uh, so I I um, when I was in the best shape of my life, I preferred lifting weights, so was not a jogger. But I, for six months of my life, I jogged, and I was when I lived in York, and I remember jogging around the city wall. It's a very uh, European-only way to jog. We don't have things like that in America. But imagine that you lived in a walled city. It's sort of circular, and it's high, and there's no gate. It's just a big wall. You cannot get out. And you have been told it's hot, the only water comes from a well and you have been told that the outside world is desolate. It's a wasteland. It's barren. And then somebody gets up on top of the wall and begins to describe things that you have no comprehension of. You've never seen a forest. You've never seen the ocean. You've, you've only known stone and dirt and dust. You, you've never known nature. You've only known crowds of humanity. You've never seen open spaces, the, the prairies and the plains and the steps that, that go on endlessly, it seems. Imagine being somebody who spent their whole, you know, childhood in a major city, uh, you know, New York, Chicago, something like that. And then for the first time, you go out to Montana and you see those open plains, we get here a vision of things beyond our wall, a glimpse, an awareness of things beyond our wall. The angel here talks about Persia and Greece. It's interesting. Persia was the new kid on the block. We've talked about this before, but the Persian Empire had rose in prominence and had conquered and usurped the Babylonian Empire, which had been the dominant empire in the Middle East and and what we now think of as like Iran and and uh, you know where Pakistan is that 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 sort of area, the Persian Gulf. Babylon had been the dominant empire for centuries. Uh, it, it it had. It had grown and grown in power and importance and influence. And now Persia is the new kid on the block. And so it's easy to think of Persia like, man, that's the big dog. That's the one to watch. The Persians are the one to watch. But what does he say? Hey, uh, I'm going and I'm going to deal with Persia and then Greece is going to come. Now, when we think of Greece we think of culture, we think of an important empire. Uh, The Greeks under Alexander the Great conquered massive territory, and then they, although it was relatively a short-lived empire, their influence into Roman culture has still affected us today. They came up with democracy and philosophy, and man, they are important. Nobody in Daniel's day would have thought that the Greeks were important. Nobody would have thought that. They were not a big deal. Power in the world was east. Babylon, the Persians, it was south. The Egyptians and the Ethiopians had power and and influence. It was not west. The Romans and the Greeks had not risen yet. And there's a glimpse of importance. We can look around and we can say, oh man, this is really what matters. But we as exiles, we as citizens of the kingdom of heaven, living among the kingdoms of this fallen world, we have a glimpse of things beyond. Now this can be sometimes very practical. Let me give you an example of this. You ever heard of Guinness? Yes, I mean beer. Oh my gosh, the pastor's talking about beer. Um, the Guinness family, the Guinness family, the ones who founded the brewery, were actually very devout Christians, many of them. And, and one of the family members wrote Bible commentaries. It's true. And he was among a group of Bible scholars in, in 1800s, England and Ireland who took the Bible seriously, and they took places like Daniel and Ezekiel, and and the book of the Revelation, and other places that talk about God's people being gathered back to the land of Israel. It talks about the, the worship being established in the Jewish temple at the time of the end when the Antichrist comes. And so they took their Bible seriously, but here's the thing. The land of Israel, or Palestine if you prefer, was a desolate wasteland. You can go and read reports from people who traveled to Palestine in the 1800s. Nothing was going on there. If you want to do some some research on your own, you can Google Mark Twain's account of his trip to Palestine. Nothing was happening. It was a, a total backwater. And there were Jews living there, but not in any great numbers, and certainly uh, not in a way, there was no establishment of a nation, a people, anything like that. And so you can go back and find Bible commentaries and Bible scholars who were writing, and they said, it's not happening now, but at some point, God is going to bring the Jewish people in mass back to the land of Israel. And everyone said that they were crazy, including other Christians who claimed to take their Bible seriously. And they were told, you're crazy. You're nuts. That's silly. That's obviously can't be what the Bible means. But they said, no, just watch. It's coming. In the same way, I remember, I, I remember, um, I'm old enough to remember the fall of the Soviet Union and the fall of the Iron Curtain. I remember as an as a, as a elementary age student when the Berlin Wall fell and, and w- was so wonderful and optimistic. You know, the Berlin Wall is crashing down. Freedom is coming to Eastern Europe. And I was, I was just excited as a kid, like, hey, these people weren't free and now they're going to be free. That's great. That's, you know, because that's how little kids think. And I remember a few years later, I was in high school and I read uh, a book, or at least part of a book, that was written in the early 90s. And the author said this. Everyone is saying that Russia is, is done. And I went to Russia in 1998. Yeltsin was still in charge. We didn't know about Putin yet. He was, he was about a year or so away from getting into power. And I went to Russia, and I'll tell you, it was a backwater. It was economically depressed. People were out of work. Um, they had, they had gotten freedom, but then they weren't ready for it. And it was just a mess. And I spent two and a half weeks. I traveled all all over Western Russia. Um, it was not a a thing you were going to think, oh, Russia is going to be a major player. Like it was done. Russia as a major player is done. America is the last superpower, and Russia is not going to have any kind of role on the world stage anymore. And I remember reading Christian thinkers and scholars who took the Bible seriously, and they said, hey, there are still parts of biblical prophecy that talk about the land we think of as Russia. And they said, it's, it's not going to be called the Soviet Union anymore. It not, may not even be called Russia at some point. But at some point in the future, Russia is going to matter again. And I remember reading that. And within two, three years, all of a sudden, Russia was in the news. Russia was dominant. Russia was rebuilding itself. And now, that's exactly what we see, you know, 20 years later why am I talking about Russia and why am I talking about Israel in the 1800s and and Guinness and all this stuff? Because there's what people think matter and there's what God knows that matters. Everybody would have been focused on Greece. So an angel telling Daniel, I'm going to go deal with Persia. Excuse me, everyone would have been po- focused on Persia is what I meant to say. And an angel telling Daniel, I'm going to go focus on Persia would have made sense. They're the new guys. They're, they're the new hotness. They're the new, they're the up and comer. They're the new kid on the block. Everybody's focused on them. Nobody would have cared about Greece. And it's possible, I mean, let me suggest this. It's possible that we in general, like Christians in general, and maybe us specifically, myself or you or our church, that we have been praying and asking and focusing on the Persias of the world. We've been, and nothing against you if you're Persian. Uh, um, That's like high on my list of places I would love to travel if I wasn't worried that that I would be killed there. Um, (laughs) But uh, I I would love to go there. The... um, but we might be focused on the new kids on the block. We might be focused on the thing, the big shiny thing that everybody says, this is so important. And it's very possible, it's very possible that God knows that there's a Greece coming, that God knows that there is something else that's really going to matter. It's possible, I I know Christians who have spent so much time in the last year focused on the presidential election. And, and, And I know Christians who, all they can focus on is, was first getting Trump reelected, and then the aftermath of him not getting elected. Or I've known Christians the other way. Their only focus was getting Trump not elected. And whether it was Biden or Bernie or somebody else, that's all they cared about. And then now that, that's been their only focus for a year. And now they don't really know what to do that Trump's gone because they're just so used to talking about him. I'm not trying to be political. I'm trying to say that maybe God's saying, this is the thing everyone is focused on and this is the thing everybody cares about. But there's a Greece coming that's actually the thing to, thing to focus on. And in fact, um, a lot of the prophecy post-exile focused on, uh, especially Daniel's prophecy, said, hey, you're going to go back into the land, but there's going to be trial and trouble ahead. You may think this is the thing to focus on, but watch out. This thing is coming. Verse 21 tells us that there's a book of truth. The angel says, um, verse 21, I'll tell you what's written in the book of truth. What is the book of truth? Where is the book of truth? I'll do you one better. Why is the book of truth? We don't know. Apparently there is a book, the book of truth, and it contains the future history of the world. It's almost like basically what God is saying is, "I, I know the beginning from the end. And I've already written it down, the future history of the world. And now we're getting a glimpse into future things. Verse 1, in the first year of Darius the Mede, I took my stand to support and protect him, speaking of Michael, the archangel. Verse 2, now then I tell you the truth, three more kings will arise in Persia, then a fourth, who will be far richer than the others. And when he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Darius is unknown to secular history, quote-unquote. And some of the earliest objections to the Christian faith and the Christian message were against the book of Daniel. Why? Because his prophecies were deemed to be far too accurate. There are people who say, well, we don't take the Bible seriously. Even Christians, even Christians will say, we don't take the Bible seriously because modern scholarship has determined that these prophecies were far too accurate to have been written beforehand. So obviously they were written by somebody after the fact, somebody who lived after the Greeks rose to prominence, after Alexander the Great, after Antiochus Epiphanes, and they wrote the prophecies in the book of Daniel. And we kind of get like all smug, you know, modern scholarship has shown us this. You can go back into ancient history and some of the very first criticisms of the Bible were people saying the exact same thing. This prophecy is too accurate. Oh, you know, it's nice when prophecies are vague. And so then you can say, oh, yeah, maybe they got a glimpse of something. Maybe they didn't. And you can just leave it alone but this is so accurate, I have to deal with it. If somebody really wrote this down hundreds of years before it happened, then that is something I have to deal with. And what I have found is that we have awareness. The light of God has, sh- has shown into our world and we, we have the ability to see over the wall Or somebody at least is seeing over the wall and reporting back to us. And so we have awareness. Exiles can see beyond. But you know what? Most people don't want awareness. And if they can minimize something, then I can ignore it. Have you ever found that to be true? If I can minimize something, I can ignore it. It's a lot easier to write somebody off if I can just say, oh, that's, that's just Joe. That's how Joe is. Oh, that's just, that's just Steve. That's how Steve is. If I can minimize something, then I can ignore it. And what happens is people will try to find ways to minimize the message of Jesus Christ. And they'll say, oh, you can't trust the Bible Darius was unknown to history. I disagree, by the way. I very much disagree with that idea. I don't believe that Darius is unknown to history. I believe that Darius is known to history through the book of Daniel. I believe the Bible is very, very historically accurate. And you know, that has been proven time and time again. You know, the city of Nineveh, there was a guy named Jonah. You might've heard of him. And uh, God told him to go to this city called Nineveh to preach the gospel. And he instead got on a boat and went the other way and um, got thrown off the boat and spent a few days inside a fish. That's not what I want to talk about, though. The city of Nineveh itself, critics of the Bible, critics of the Christian faith, said you can't trust the Bible because the city of Nineveh was a myth. It did not exist historically. Historically. And that's what they said, and that's what they said, and that's what they said, until a British army officer who was stationed in the Middle East found the city of Nineveh. Now we know Nineveh is a historical fact. People said King David was a myth until they found in archaeological digging in Israel tablets that recorded history, including King David. So if at some point an archaeological dig in Iraq or Syria or somewhere else found evidence, and if you're on the audio-only version of this, I just did the air quotes thing with my fingers, right? But they find evidence of Darius the Mede, king of Persia, Then they'll say, oh, yeah, well, history tells us. History already told us. The Bible is proven over and over again. But if you can minimize it, then you can ignore it. The prophecy is too accurate, so it can't be true. Well, Which do you want? If it was too vague, you would ignore it. If it's too accurate, you ignore it. What you're trying to do is minimize it so you can just put it away and shove it aside and not have to think about it. But Jesus can't be minimized one man claimed to be God. He was seen over 500 people who knew Jesus, saw somebody that they believed to be Jesus risen from the dead. You have to deal with that. He can't be minimized. And so we as exiles those of us who the light of God has sh- has shown in our lives and we've responded we've said yes and we've become citizens of the kingdom of heaven by the grace of Jesus Christ we're given these glimpses of things beyond the city wall cuz we're not from this we're not of this city anymore this isn't our home so we want to know what's beyond But I think if if this is your home, if the world is the place that you be all and end all that you want and you don't want to know any different, then you're not going to want to know about things beyond. You're not going to want to see. You're going to want to hide. I want to say this, though, to believers as an application point. We don't want to be hypocrites. We don't want to be hypocrites. So we need to avoid minimizing the concerns of others so that we aren't hypocrites. That's been our challenge. Let's be honest. Faith on Hill is a white church. It's not because we don't want minorities, but uh, Faith on Hill is a church that is in one of the whitest parts of Portland. I mean, I've, I've looked up the demographics of Milwaukee, Oak Grove, Gladstone. We are not a diverse melting pot in this neighborhood. Now, I'd love to see more and more people of color and minorities be part of our fellowship. Absolutely. But let's be honest about it. And so one of the challenges is, as a white church... In the last year especially, we've had to come face to face with the pleas and the concerns and the the issues that our brothers and sisters in Christ, fellow believers in Jesus, people that we're going to spend all eternity with, in the black church, in the Hispanic church, in the Asian church, and they have said, hey, the concerns of our communities are real. And we've had to come to terms with that and it's easier to minimize it so we can ignore it. Oh, I'm not racist, so that doesn't apply to me. Oh, if you just if you just do whatever the cops say, then that'll be okay. If you think that's true by the way, watch the video of that army officer in Virginia who got pepper sprayed for zero reason, pulled over and and, and horribly treated. And then there's People from all different points of view, with, with in, in in our community, outside of our community, younger churches that don't care at all about the older saints, older churches that couldn't give a rip about the concerns of younger believers, people in uh, outside of our, our church, but they also say, "Hey, this is how we feel treated." People uh, people in the in the gay community, people in um, uh, different uh, ethnic communities. Uh, people, you know, in our neighbors, hey, how how do you feel? And we can just write them off and ignore them and minimize it so we don't have to think about it or we can engage because we don't want to be hypocrites. Because what we're calling the world around us to do is to not minimize Jesus so that they could just ignore him. We're calling the world around us to deal with Jesus, accept him, reject him, but you got to deal with him. And I think the same is true. So we aren't hypocrites, We we need to ask God, God, give me supernatural vision to see beyond my walls and to not minimize what others are saying. Christians shouldn't divide the way that we have divided so easily, especially in this last year. Lord, give me the grace. That's, I think, one of the best things about our theology and community thing that we've got going on because some of our churches and some of our, our church members and some of our leaders in our group of churches have real strong opinions one way or the other or, or three ways or the other on this subject and to have the grace to say I'm not going to minimize you and write you off I need to engage with you because you're my sister or you're my brother in Jesus So these last verses here, verse 2 on, says that there will be three kings and then a fourth who will be far richer than the others. And when he has gained power by his wealth, he will stir up everyone against the kingdom of Greece. Then a mighty king will arise who will rule with great power and do as he pleases. And after he has arisen, his empire will be broken up and parceled out towards the four winds of heaven. It will not go to his descendants, nor will he the power he exercised, because his empire will be uprooted and given to others. And basically, everyone agrees that this is talking about uh, Alexander the Great and Greece. Even people that, that minimize this part of the Bible, uh, they would agree that that's what this is talking about. Uh, the king of the south will become strong, but one of his commanders will become even stronger than he, and he will rule his own kingdom with great power. After some years... They will become allies. The daughter of the king of the south will go to the king of the north and make an alliance, but she will not retain her power, nor he his power uh, will not last. In those days, she will be betrayed, together with her royal escort and her father and the one who supported her. One from her family line will arise and take her place, and he will attack the forces of the king of the north and enter his fortress and fight against them and be victorious. He will also seize their gods, their metal images, their valuable articles of silver and gold, and carry them off to Egypt. For some years he will leave the king of the north alone. Then the king of the north will invade the realms of the king of the south, but will retreat to his own country. His sons will prepare for war and assemble a great army, which will sweep on like an irresistible flood and carry the battle as far as his fortress. Then the king of the south will march out in rage and fight against the king of the north, who will raise a large army, but it will be defeated. When the army is carried off, the king of the south will be filled with pride and slaughter, many thousands, yet he will not remain triumphant. For the king of the north will muster another army, larger than the first, and after several years he will advance with a huge army fully equipped. In those times many will rise against the king of the south, Those who are violent among your own people will will rebel in the fulfillment of this vision without success. Then the king of the north will come, build up his siege ramps, and capture a fortified city. The forces of the south will be powerless to resist. Even their best troops will not have the strength to stand. The invader will do as he pleases. No one will be able to stand against him. He will be established himself in the beautiful land and will have power to destroy it. He will determine... He will be determined to come with might of his entire kingdom and make an alliance with the king of the south. He will give him a daughter in marriage in order to overthrow the kingdom, but his plans will not succeed or help him. Then he will turn his attention to the coastlands and will take many of them, but a commander will put an end to his insolence and will turn his insolence back on him. After this, he will turn back towards the fortress of his own country, but will stumble and fall to be seen no more. His successor will send out a tax collector to maintain the royal splendor. In a few years, however, he will be destroyed, but not by anger or in battle. He will be succeeded by a contemptible person who has not been given the honor of royalty. He will invade the kingdom when its people feel secure. He will seize it through intrigue. Then an overwhelming army will be swept away before him. Both it and a prince of the covenant will be destroyed. And after the coming to an agreement with him, he will act deceitfully. And with only a few people, he will rise to power. When the richest province feel secure, he will invade them and achieve what neither his father nor his forefathers did. He will distribute plunder, loot, and wealth among his followers. He will plot the overthrow of fortresses, but only for a time. With a large army, he will stir up his strength and courage against the kings of the south. The king of the south will wage war with a large and very powerful army, but he will not be able to stand because of the plots devised against him. Those who eat from the king's provision will try to destroy him. His army will be swept away and many will fall in battle. The two kings with their hearts bent on evil will sit at the same table and lie to each other, but to no avail. Because an end will still come at the appointed time, the king of the north will return to his own country with great wealth, but his heart will be set against the holy covenant, and he will take action against it and then return to his own country. At the appointed time, he will invade the south again, but this time the outcome will be different from what it was before. Ships of the western coastland will oppose him, and he will lose heart. Then he will turn back and vent his fury against the holy covenant, he will return to show favor or show favor to those who forsake the Holy Covenant. His armed forces will rise up to desecrate the temple fortress and will abolish the daily sacrifices. Then they will set up the abomination that causes desolation. With flattery, he will corrupt those who have violated the covenant. But the people who know their God will firmly resist. Those who are wise will instruct many, though for a time they will fall by the sword and be burned or captured or plundered. And when they fall, they will receive a little help and many who are not sincere will join them. Some of the wise will stumble so that they may be refined, purified and may spotless until the time of the end for it will still come at the appointed time. Now you might remember when we studied chapter eight, this sounds very similar. So I'm not gonna retrace all of that. Needless to say, this is very accurate to the history of the Eastern Mediterranean after the life of Daniel, describing the rise of the Greeks and then this way that the Greek empire was split up and the conflicts that happened and the Maccabean revolt and all of that leading to a fellow named Antiochus Epiphanes. What's God up to with all of this? Why is he telling Daniel all of these things? Here's a fact, surprise, spoiler alert, we live in a sinful world. So we shouldn't be surprised when it's full of sin. I was talking to one of the brothers in the church this week, and he asked, what do I think God is up to when it comes to COVID? And I said, you know, part of what we've got to think about with this last year is just that we live in a fallen world, and that fallen world is full of sickness and disease, and about every hundred years, we have a global pandemic. This is just the first time we've had a global pandemic with jet travel and social media and all of the things that come with it. So it used to be that you had a, a pandemic that would sweep across the globe over years and it, it would be in Europe and then it would die down in Europe and it would flare up in Africa and then it would die down in Africa and it would flare up in um, in North America or South America and it would kind of move through the world instead of being all over the world all at once because of jet travel. So I think we have to own that like maybe this isn't God doing anything, maybe it's just the reality of living in a fallen world that has sickness and disease and pandemic. At the same time, God uses things. Like all of this description of war and intrigue and power plays and oppression and evil, that's just human history. So what's God up to? God's purpose is for his people. So he's taking the actions of sinful people and using them for his purpose. And God's ultimate purpose is for his glory and for our salvation. So what God is saying is, hey, this was always going to happen. I'm going to make use of it. And I'm going to establish things. And it was because of all of these intrigues and power plays that the Romans came in to Israel. And it was through the Romans that so many things happened with Jesus and the coming of the Messiah and his death and his resurrection. And it was because of the Romans that so many things happened for the spreading of the gospel in the early church. And I think what's going on here, and you read through all of this, and I'm not gonna bother you with a history lesson, although I, I can recommend some good resources if you're interested. But what I think is going on is that God is taking the things that happen in a sinful world and he's using it for his glory, and for our salvation. So what's God been doing this last year during COVID? Do we get to peek beyond and and as exiles see beyond the, the walls of this city to see what God is doing? Let me say this. Whatever God has been doing, it's for his glory and it's for the salvation of people. And so if in this time you've known you need to seek God, you're not a believer, you need to seek God, then this is the day to surrender your life to Jesus. And if you are a believer, but you say, you know what? I, I've, I've given into caring about all of the things like the Persias. I haven't cared about the Greases. I haven't cared about the things that God says are really important. Today's the day to just say, God, I want to get on track with you. It's so good to know that God will take the things in this world around us and he will use it for his glory and for his good pleasure and for our blessing and for the salvation of people lost in their sin. So exile, see beyond, and I pray that God would give us eyes to see what's really happening and hearts that are willing to respond to what God is doing. If you have a moment, we're going to go now into our time of prayer and response. And I'd encourage you to take the things we've talked about into that time and respond to Jesus. He's been speaking to us. Now let's respond to him. Well, as we have been spending time in God's word, he has been speaking to us and we want to respond to him. This morning, as we close our time and we respond in worship, we want to respond to what God has been speaking to us. We want to declare his praises. We want to rejoice in his work in our life. And so I want to invite you in, and I'm going to read from the first chapter of Ephesians, and feel free to use the pause button if you need to pause and spend time in prayer. But what I want to do is read a few verses here and lead us in a time of response to what God says. Paul, an apostle of Christ, by the will of God to the holy people of Ephesus, the faithful in Jesus Christ, Grace and peace to you from God, our Father, and the Lord Jesus Christ. Praise be to God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love he predestined us for adoption according to his good pleasure, which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the time reaches their fulfillment, to bring unity to all things in heaven and on the earth under Christ. What I would like to invite us to do now is to think of a word or a phrase that that we heard from God's word and that resonated with our spirits and, and what I'd like for you to do is just where you are at, say that word, say that phrase, type it in the chat, let people know. I resonated strongly with the words lavished and unity. But whatever it is that you, that spoke to you, that resonated with you, why don't you let God know? I mean, he knows, but vocalize it and let other people know. And next, as I read this again, I'd invite you to pray over it, to ask God to solidify it in your heart and in your life. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing. And Lord, we thank you. We thank you that through Jesus, you have given us all that we need. You have given us all hope and faith and power. We pray that you would help us to surrender ourselves to your blessings. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance to his pleasure and will, to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given to the ones he loves. Father, thank you that you've loved us. Thank you, Jesus, that you loved us, and that you love us still. Thank you that you've chosen us, and you've chosen us to be holy and blameless. And I'm only holy, and we are only holy because of you. We are only holy because of you. Lord, we pray that you would increase our holiness before you, our blamelessness before you. And right here where we're at, let's, if you need to hit pause, that's fine, but let's take a moment and ask the Lord to increase our holiness before him to increase his work, his sanctifying work, setting us apart to make us like Jesus. Lord, I pray that you would do that. And wherever you're at, however that needs to be, respond. Jesus, I pray that you would give me more grace, that you would remove my weariness with people sometimes. Lord, that you would increase my desire to respond in love. Thank you, Lord. Lord, we pray that others would be delivered as well to know that goodness, to know that holiness before you, to the praise of your glorious grace. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding. Thank you, Jesus, that you have forgiven our sins, that you have washed us clean. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And I pray, Lord, for all who hear my voice, that you would give the gift of knowledge and understanding, wisdom on how to live, how to act, how to speak, when not to speak. Wisdom in confusing days. He has made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put in effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. And Lord, I pray for any and all who ask for a knowledge of your will, how they should go, what path they should take that you would speak to them. But we know, Lord, this speaks to the bigger picture and as we've studied this morning in the book of Daniel, the purpose of, is Christ and we pray that his kingdom would come quickly. Your will be done, your kingdom come in Milwaukee, Gladstone, Oak Grove, Clackamas, Happy Valley, in all of Oregon, on earth as it is in heaven. Thank you, Jesus, that you have done that work. Thank you. We bless your name. And I'd invite you in this moment to take what you've heard and ask God to seal it into your heart to empower us to live out this law of love that God has given us so that we would be under Christ and his authority. God bless you. We'll see you this week in our Zoom groups, on our podcasts, and we'll be back together next Sunday morning in person and online at 10.30 a.m.